Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 49, Escaping the Sovereignty Trap. Well, welcome to episode 49 of the podcast, where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regarded as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me, as always, is the Dean of Institutional Effectiveness and Innovation, Chris Paget. You're working for me now, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> I know you like You're- titles. Yeah, you'll be uh, evaluated this semester uh, for your own effectiveness. So we'll see how I, that know, goes. I, just to be clear, that is a joke. He is not the dean of institutional effectiveness and innovation. But I did spend about twenty minutes looking at our uh, at our um, at our school and trying to find the silliest title for a dean, and and that was the one I, I found. So, uh, so congratulations on the new job. Thank you. There's a lot of competition these days because they're starting to invent new administrative titles, much like, say, minor league baseball teams are adopting new mascots. Yeah. I just read a story about that in the, in the Times this morning, and there's a, a couple of guys down in, in L.A. who have made a kind of cottage industry out of coming up with new uh, minor league baseball team mascots and titles and images for their marketing and uh, it reminded me a little bit of, of the, 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 the new and innovative uh, administrative position coming in. So, for example, some of the, the team names they've come up with are the uh, Garbage Pandas, the like it. Sod Poodles, and last but not least, <laughs> the uh, Yard Goats. Those are good. So, I, yeah, yeah. Well, like those. They're inspiring, aren't they? And so deans of institutional effectiveness, uh, student success. Yeah. yeah. I, what I if, think, we, if we put the two together, we could have the dean of, uh, of Garbage Pandas. No? <laughs> I think so, because the whole idea is marketing, right? You know, and you're trying yeah. to appeal to a kind of niche uh, client base, whether it be local sort of small town minor league baseball fans, or I, I don't know exactly, who is our market base for a dean of student effectiveness? Well, it's it's um, it's uh, management types, right? It's it's because all that language is is kind of the textbook management kind of thing. When I, I, I found a title and I didn't know how to look in our uh, in our directory to, to find who had the title. So I just Googled it. And what came up were all these kind of business management classes that have invented these terms um, mm-hmm. and then use, you know, kind of spread them like gospel across institutions. And it, it almost doesn't matter now whether you're, you know, like a, a, a supermarket chain or a, or a university, you get the same kind of titles for, uh, for, these, for these management positions. So, um, Well, I can say I suspected that was the case because you, you and I were talking last week, right, about how in the 1960s, what came to be, you know, sort of new corporate management, this idea of the mission statement. Yeah. 
started making the rounds. And then naturally, about 30 years later, it found its way into uh, education. And so we can recall, even in our tenure at the college, any number of efforts to try to create a, an institutional mission statement, yep. which became really sort of the butt of jokes, even for the administration, as we used to have our yearly uh, convocation meeting where all the faculty assembled in the cafeteria, the president could barely, the college president could barely say what the mission statement was without, you know, basically cracking a, you know, a, a yeah. smile, right? You know, so much like that, then I think these worlds of marketing, corporate marketing, education, and minor league baseball all merge. All drinking from the same trough, right? They've been saying mm -hmm. for years, we got to run education like a business. Uh, education is, I would say, still not really run by a business, but at least it, it still now it uses the terminology um, and a lot of the ideology of, of businesses as well. And this is actually, uh, this stuff is, is very uh, significant right now because we are flying towards the start of our semester, uh, which uh, I, I want to pre preface by saying I love my job. Uh, once I'm doing it, it's great. But getting ready for the semester is the thing I look forward to least. Because, you know, like, uh, you, you know, some some local functionary or bureaucrat getting ready for the semester, particularly now that we're teaching all online, is a series of tiny tasks um, that you have to do that has nothing to do with history or teaching and very little to do with learning either. So uh, I'm ready for the semester to start in the sense that I want to be doing the stuff I like as opposed to the stuff that I don't like about the job. Well, as your new dean of institutional effectiveness, <laughs> I'm, I'm, taking, I'm taking notes here. But uh, I would say this, Josh, you are certainly a fantastic professor, but uh, not so great an employee. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think my, my career goal was never to be a great employee, I think. I don't know if I ever put that on my, on my uh, vision board. I meant it as a compliment, this. by the way. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I know. Only from you is that a compliment, though. I think for thank most you. people, I would oh, well, take that as, as an insult. Yeah. <laughs> I know where you're coming from. <laughs> well, listen, uh, it is indeed the uh, the late days of summer for us, and we are facing uh, a new school year. And that is certainly a time of, uh, of reflection in its own right uh, of the summer just past uh, and the year to come. Uh, we've had no shortage of things to reflect on naturally, over the last uh, 18 months or so. Uh, the current events have done us uh, a great favor by providing us with endless material, you know, not only for the podcast, but for our courses as well. And, you know, one of the things I've been bumping all along, as you'll recall, uh, through our summer podcast uh, was something that may at first glance not pertain directly to some of the weightier issues we've discussed, but as uh, you know, lifelong uh, baseball fans, I mean, I've already managed to sneak in references today, right? To, to I, minor I league baseball teams, yep. but yeah, as long, lifelong uh, fans of uh, of the major leagues, uh, you know, I've mentioned all along uh, that uh, it is our own beloved San Francisco Giants that have maintained a, a solid hold on first place in the America or the National League West which I'm happy to, to say as of this uh, moment, they still do and, and are leading that uh, division. Uh, but it was uh, something uh, maybe 
less celebratory that I'd come across last week and, and again had uh, communicated to you, uh, something from uh, the Giants' recent past, what we'll call the, the much ballyhooed uh, recent past, the golden age, as I like to say, of San Francisco Giants history back in 2010 with the first of the three World Series won by the Giants. One of the uh, characters from that team of characters was a first baseman by the name of Aubrey Huff. And uh, Aubrey Huff was a, a central part of that year's uh, uh, you know, ultimate championship season. Uh, in the years since then, uh, things have not gone, uh, what would we say, Josh, had not gone in <laughs> such a sanguine direction uh, for Mr. Huff. I guess it's tough for, for old ball players sometimes to, to find their rhythm in, in their post-career baseball career uh, years. But in this case, I think uh, Aubrey Huff has pretty much made as big a mess out of that as, as possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, he went from this like lovable goofball on the 2010 team. He was famous for uh, wearing a rally thong, uh, which got a lot of a lot of press. Um, and then his career ended. I, I don't know. It must have been, you know, four or five years ago or something like that. And he's made this just, you know, maybe it's not a dissent. I assume that, you know, his politics were always vile. But um, but, you know, it's the kind of like Facebook addled, uh, even sub Fox News kind of addled politics of our current era. Uh, conspiracy theories, uh, racism and sexism, uh, outlandish statements um, that have, uh, you know, I would say probably more people know him now as this this lunatic than they knew him as a uh, as an actual baseball player and a pretty good one in his prime as well. So, you know, it's really a sign of the times, I think, that we just live in a, in, in this uh, media environment where if you've got any inklings of, of, you know, this kind of brain, I guess, or if this brain, if you have this kind of brain, um, it's very simple to get kind of down that rabbit hole of insane right-wing conspiracies and nonsense. And certainly Aubrey Huff has taken that, that plunge. Yeah, he has. I mean, he's really an especially vile example uh, for, for, for my money, at least a vile mm -hmm. example of that kind of subculture you mentioned that was given a lot of airtime during the Trump years uh, that sort of blends a kind of um, belligerent machismo yeah. uh, with a kind of vile nativism. So mm -hmm. uh, in, in Aubrey Huff's case, you know, using his social media platform, which I understand he has, a, you know, a couple hundred thousand, I don't, I don't know, followers. I don't know where that, exactly that puts him on the scale. I know it's well short of the Kardashians, but more than history against the grain, uh, that he has kind of, yeah, he's kind of made a practice out of using sort of shooting gallery humor, we'll call it. That is taking uh, targets one might find in a gun range mm -hmm. uh, with the outline, say, of a human figure uh, filled in this case with bu bullet holes uh, and using that as fodder for his followers on social media to understand that if any particular person that Aubrey Huff, uh, you know, does not approve of, uh, for example, uh, Bernie Saunders, let's say, in the last run up to the presidential election in 2020, that if Bernie Saunders were to win, that what these uh, these practice range, you know, um, imprints would 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 illustrate 
uh, you know, full as they are of bullet holes, would would be ultimately what would happen to Bernie Sanders. Right. Right. And and then when people object to what is especially violent nature, you know, Huff's sort of typical thing is say, hey, can't you take a joke? I'm just kidding. Yep. You know, that yeah. sort of thing. Well, apparently even the people on Twitter <laughs> uh, were uh, finally, uh, you know, moved to end uh, Aubrey's Twitter feed. So uh, and his, you know, his response to that, as I, I read in the uh, the media was, you know, typically kind of brazen and cocksure and, you know, not no apologies. And, and if that's what they want, then they're full of liberals and all that kind of, you know, yeah. run of the mill culture war stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it had us thinking, right? Because as we were making the transition through the various, you know, uh, connecting of the dots, I guess, from our popular culture and media to this week's episode, you know, we were thinking uh, that, in some measure, what, if not Aubrey himself represents, then certainly the niche he occupies in, in the culture wars, you know, in some way must reflect, among other things, on how we do history education in this country, mm -hmm. how we do, um, you know, sort of civics education. Uh, anybody who's come up in the public education system of this country you know, has been subject to the, you know, the battery of various institutional requirements for U.S. history and U.S. government. Typically in high school, you take that civics class, your senior year, you take U.S. history, your junior year, even in eighth grade and, you know, at other times. And one of the justifications for that, the rationale for that historically, that requirement, that institutional requirement, is so that uh, young people would learn what it means to be fit citizens <laughs> of the American Republic, uh, if we dig a little deeper, what we'll find is it was often particularly prescribed for those who were coming to this country as immigrants and who presumably coming from old world, what, maybe totalitarian governments or, or non-democratic governments, uh, that they wouldn't know, in other words, how to function as responsible citizens in a governing democracy. And so even to this day, I mean, look, if you're going for the, you know, uh, to become a naturalized citizen, what do they make you do? They make you take a history test, right? Yeah. And so this was always part of that nativist sense that it was always someone else, that is foreigners who wouldn't understand how to live responsibly mm -hmm. in the fullness of citizenship that this country would bestow and that therefore they would have to be, you know, tutored in how to do that. And so, you know, as you and I were talking about it, um, because even at the community college level, we often have these sort of curriculum mandates to make sure that the U.S. history class we're teaching or maybe the California history class we're teaching covers something that they call the sort of the Constitution lesson. So that yeah. you're learning about the system of laws and government and that sort of thing. And so it left us to wonder if we've been doing this all these years, then either, you know, Aubrey Huff has cut class habitually <laughs> and just missed out on those lessons, or more likely he and his 200,000 followers and whatever that represents are learning a very different lesson than what you or my might intend such a subject uh, to provide, in other words, talking about, you know, uh, pluralities in diverse, you know, citizenries, 
the multitude of interests and identities that go into making up a country like ours, that given their nativist stance, you know, they're generally anti-immigrant, anti-diversity, that they're seeing instead a different lesson. And so, yeah, Josh, you know, I mean, I had to think about this because I thought, well, actually, maybe they weren't absent on those days, that maybe when we get around to teaching what we'll call sovereignty in this country, that because particularly in the historical buildup to it, because of the sort of standard version of history we teach, which after all tends to feature whom? It tends to feature uh, Anglo-Europeans, uh, that is, uh, you know, native English speaking, Protestant Christian types, um, particularly men, you know, as political leaders, you know, the, the sort of presidential synthesis, right, of white male uh, political leaders. And so, you know, in a way, I guess, yeah, Aubrey's right. If, if you really internalize that lesson about who America is, where America come from, and how you're supposed to behave in America, you could almost knit together that kind of nativist argument mm -hmm. for cultural uh, conformity, cultural assimilation. Well, that's what I was, I was thinking is that, you know, even to the extent that that I think people get the kind of diversity aspect of, of American history, there still is that that tendency to focus on on the assimilationist aspect of it. You know, you you've you've railed on this before, but like the the melting pot idea. Um, so the you know the entire point of, of public education, as you were suggesting, is to take this uh, you know these these foreigners, these non-native people, which is an ironic thing for uh, to, you know to have in a in a country based on settler colonialism, but um, to take them and then you know kind of deracinate de them, right? Um, to mm -hmm. melt them into this greater whole, and and as they lose what they were, they become this this new thing, which is part of this this American nation. So, you know, even even where there is the diversity, it's still often and I don't mean to be too to generalize too much, but it's still often taught in in that sense of well the, the point of diversity is you to get rid of diversity, right? To to assimilate, to create something unified out of out of, you know, this diversity which is seen as as ant antithetical to some kind of real real unity. Yeah, the the fear of all things foreign you know, as perceived, mm. right, that somehow undermines, and they usually use that kind of collective we or our, yeah. our culture, our heritage, that sort of thing. And, and let's face it, I mean, it these, these lines overlap. You could do a Venn diagram, you know, white nationalism, nativism, uh, and even the kind of, of uh, you know, vitriolic stuff that Aubrey Huff is putting forward on his social media there there's obviously common connection there well okay so in uh, huff's home state of texas this week uh in fact just this morning uh, reading in the the times the republican uh majority uh of the legislature which was attempting to pass what we generally refer to as voter suppression laws laws that uh, many perceive to be designed to uh, reduce the number of either immigrant or uh, non-white voters uh, took a rather extraordinary uh, step in issuing arrest warrants. Uh, that is, the sergeant of arms of the Texas legislature was directed to issue arrest warrants for some 50, I believe, 50 Democratic legislators in Texas who, as a protest against the intended uh, voter suppression bill, uh, decided to literally not show up 
uh, to the legislature and thus deny a quorum so that the bill couldn't be passed. And, and most of the headlines had them leaving the state of Texas. I'm not sure that people literally were leaving the state or just hiding out. But the response to this was to have them issued arrest warrants. So, so now, look, if we take this at face value, what are we saying here? That in this, this governing democracy, right, this nation built on popular sovereignty, uh, that democratically elected legislature, legislators and lawmakers are being subject to arrest essentially uh, on a procedural ground for refusing to support voter suppression laws. How do you feel about that one? Well, the, I, the irony is, you know, I, I didn't read uh, anything about Huff's response to being banned from Twitter, but I imagine, because I know this, this script pretty well by now, that he probably screamed about censorship and First Amendment, you know, same thing that Trump did and same thing that, that we generally see when these uh, monsters are, are banned from so, some social media. And then here you have an example of the actual state, right? <laughs> Arresting people <laughs> for, uh, for holding different, different viewpoints. I, I'm, I'm imagining, uh, you, can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that there's not going to be an outcry from uh, constitutional conservatives about, about this. Um, this is <laughs> not seen as as much of a crisis as some uh, weirdo, uh, you know, ex-baseball player being banned from Twitter. Yeah, I know one of the uh, the women uh, uh, who's a, a longtime, in fact, Democratic Assemblywoman in Texas responded uh, when asked if she then planned to return to the the, uh, the state house to avoid arrest. Responded uh, with a full throated quote, "Hell no," uh, <laughs> and declared further that quote, "I didn't sacrifice my business, my family time, and crispy tacos." just to go down to walk into the House floor and help them pander to 5% of the electorate. This is a civil matter. I have not committed any crime. Uh, that's, so that's awesome. there you go. I mean, there's, there's a, a kind of, you know, what I would consider a kind of vital spirit maybe of, uh, you know, of, of democratic politics. And I don't mean democratic party. I mean, the mm -hmm. idea of people vested, with the, uh, you know, the sovereignty of, of governing. And, and I think, you know, part of what you and I were, were coming to, you know, as we've been talking about these sovereignty issues and the teaching of history, especially uh, over the course of the last several months, is at least in part what this all reflects. If, if not Aubrey Huff necessarily, though, though I think he represents something in this, this vein, uh, certainly what's happening in Texas and around the country with voter suppression laws is a basic fundamental problem over the idea of sovereignty and how mm -hmm. sovereignty gets divided, you know, how, how governing works, uh, who's ultimately in charge, if you will, who is obligated and on in what ways, you know, to the laws of the country. And, uh, for my for my money, and I, I guess it means you know I must be a historian, right? That the roots of this issue uh, that have been so manifest in our country now uh, that the roots of this lie in the story we tell ourselves yes. about who we are and where we come from, and 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 particularly how that gets encoded in this issue uh, of sovereignty. 
Yeah, I like that a lot. And, you know, I want to give you props once again for for the sovereignty sovereignty trap idea. I know you you're not sure if you 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 saw somewhere if you you created it, but I uh, I re registered the trademark on your name so it's now officially your you can print it on t-shirts and all that kind of stuff, but um no, that's it's it's such a good point and I think it, it kind of speaks to just, you know, thinking about our own discipline this this um this kind of duality that we that we deal with because one of the things I've become more and more aware of and cognizant of and, and um, resistant to, not resistant to, but, but you know, just have come to, to have to face more is that our discipline is very much complicit in, in so much of the way people think about, you know, the nation, about the world, about other people. Um, complicit as kind of a handmaiden to power. And this is something that uh, eventually I will stop talking about Priya Sadia every, every week, but you know, it's still fresh in my mind. Uh, it's it's something that she talks about is that at a, at a certain, you know, at a certain point in the 19th and into the 20th century, if you wanted to be a member of the elite, you studied history, right? And then you use history as basically an argument for, for the continuance of things as they were. Um, she also talks about, you know, the kind of post 1950s where uh, history increasingly became the province of mutiny. And so th that kind of pull there between history as complicit and then history as, as we want to practice it, as we want to teach it, as we want to talk about it, which is this vital, uh, this, this vital subject that, that helps us be better people and, and hopefully build a better world. Um, you know, we, we, we're still trying to square that. And, and you know, one of the things I've, I've found in doing this podcast um, and thinking about you know, this, this issue of the sovereignty trap in, in particular is that you know, we do want to tell better stories. And I think you've done such an amazing job at, at kind of talking about particularly uh, ways of, of, of talking about what we used to call U.S. history in ways that are, uh, are, are grander, are, are less parochial, um, more global, and include stories outside that, that sovereignty trap. But I, I still have this, this sense, you know, that the more we try to extricate the kind of parts of our discipline that kind of speak to that complicity, the more we find smaller and smaller uh, elements of complicity. Um, and so it, it, it's, it's an ongoing project, in other words. I, I don't think it's a project that we can actually complete, but it's something I think that's worth continually thinking about um, to try to bit by bit and piece by piece come up with a way of, of talking about history that relies less on you know, the assumptions of the sovereignty trap, but also I would say less on the language and ideas of, of, of empire, of nationalism, of racism, which, you know, we would like to think have been extricated, but really have not. We still use a lot of assumptions based on this past 200 years of history, a 200 years in which history as a field really came into being. Um, you know, when we talked to, to Priya a few episodes ago, I threw out this idea that it, it you know, um, that it's like we're, we're in a hole. We've, we've kind of dug ourselves into a hole and the tools of history is uh, that history give, gives us are like shovels. And so the only thing we know how to do is just, just keep digging. And as long as we keep digging, we're just getting further and further into that sovereignty trap. It gets harder and harder to get out. Um, and so, you know, I think what, what you have um, really done a great job of is suggesting some tools we can use that aren't just shovels, but also aren't pickaxes or trowels or spades or other digging tools, but tools that might you know, allow us to climb out of that hole, climb out of that trap. And, and, and hopefully, again, not all at once, um, but bit by bit, create a discipline that we can be proud of, 
where that vitality of the discipline is, is going to be at the fore and that complicity is going to be more and more of a, of a, you know, kind of a quiet echo of, of what had been, but does, isn't part of the discipline any longer. So, uh, you know, kudos to you. This is my long way of saying kudos to you for, for highlighting that sovereignty trap and, um, and, and highlighting some of the ways we can get out of it. Well, thanks. You know, I mean, it's our job to compliment each other as often as we yeah. can on this podcast, <laughs> right. uh, because we no don't one do else it, is will. to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. No, but seriously, I, you know, I appreciate that, Josh. I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to work through along with a lot of other uh, people inspired by scholars like Priya, uh, you know, who are going deep with this thing, you know, because as I was thinking about, uh, you know, the examples we gave of Aubrey Howe from the Texas legislature, I realized once again, that how we end up defining sovereignty in the teaching of U.S. history, particularly as it relates to this issue of, of uh, you know, race and ethnicity mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 a, and a host of other categories, but, but certainly those categories, that we create this restrictive understanding of how it's all supposed to work. Uh, that is what it means to be a citizen, what it means right. to be even patriotic, you know, what it means to be law abiding. Um, and, and what I mean is that in a country that is still essentially failing to come to terms with its own racial history, for example, um, that history is not offering us any, that is the study of history, the way we teach history is not offering us many tools, as you suggest, to extricate ourselves from that deep hole that we've dug, but instead keeps giving us the same tools to dig uh, it even deeper. And so what I propose and what we said we would do all along this year is to try to uh, take this out of the cloud a little bit and bring it back down you know, to the hard earth of, of contextual history so that folks mm -hmm. who are thinking about these things just in, you know, the normal course of day-to-day of -day politics in this country, uh, or certainly those who are, are trying to teach, uh, you know, maybe have some, what, some new ways or alternate ways, if not exactly new, because I don't want to claim that what we're suggesting, you know, we've created in our own incubator here known as History Against Grant, but certainly from what we're drawing out of the best scholarship and putting then into circulation through the podcast, uh, different and alternative ways of approaching this that I think will be far more fruitful uh, to uh, you know a kind of usable understanding yeah. of history to help us resolve these these very issues. If you've forgotten what I'm naming, you're gonna long to reclaim it one day because that summer feeling is gonna haunt you one day in your life. And if All right, so if you crack open a U.S. history uh, textbook, you know, you'll, you'll find, particularly in the early chapters dealing with the colonial era, the run-up to the American Revolution, the Constitution, essentially the, the founding of American sovereignty, you'll find, you know, quite a lot of attention given over to what we might call the formal affairs of politics. Uh, that is, uh, you know, politics as governing through institutions. And you know, typically what you'll find in the content of that then are the stories of 
those individuals who at the time, that is in the late colonial period in the revolutionary era, the constitutional era, you know, come to be designated, uh, well, variously, but certainly as founding fathers, mm -hmm. right? In other words, built into the narrative is this kind of paternal sense that the nation will be born of these founding fathers, these great men of history, um, who, uh, as Abraham you know, Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, famously uh, at the time of the Civil War, you know, said essentially gave birth to the nation. Yeah. Right. Um, I kid my students. It ends up sounding like the life talk. You know, fathers, <laughs> birth. Yeah, uh -huh. You know, well, but 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 what we know about these figures, they're the ones who end up on places like Mount Rushmore and yeah. as monuments in Washington, D.C. They, they tend to be, again, Anglo um, Christian, even in the age of the Enlightenment, Anglo deist, if you will, uh, figures, men of property, uh, all, always men for the most part. I mean, a Betsy Ross might slip through an Abigail mm. Adams or something. But in talking about formal governing, you got your Thomas Jefferson's, your George Washington's, your John Adams's. Uh, these are the figures uh, who then are seen as the architects of American sovereignty. And by and large, the system they create, say, in the Constitution, you know, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, so the system they create famously embodied uh, or, or expressed in the Constitution, the document produced, in other words, in 1787 to become the kind of charter for the new uh, government of the United States. Famously, the preamble of that document begins with the words, we, the people. And that was meant to be an expression of this, this idea of popular sovereignty, that the ultimate authority for governing rests not with just an elite class of white men, but for all the citizenry, all the, the public, if you will, of this country. I mean, the, the, the word republic itself comes from a Latin uh, word, res publica, meaning, you know, public rule, right? Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so we know that because we learn that in our civics classes, or we learn that in, you know, eighth grade U.S. history or whatever. Um but we also know on the face of it, it doesn't it doesn't pass the eye test because, you know, with the Philadelphia Convention of, of 1787, that is wherein the Constitution was drafted, you know, the the people there were again entirely male, entirely property owning, well connected, well educated, uh, a kind of handy little uh, homily as they were. Uh, well-bred, well-fed, well-read, and well-wed, those men who were at Philadelphia in 87. Uh, so there, yeah, there were no women there. There were no people of color, no uh, unfree, that is, say, servant mm -hmm. folk or enslaved people there, no native people there. And yet they proclaimed, we the people are. Right. So from the beginning, there was a kind of paternalism that seemed to channel a particular ethnic, racial, class, um, standing, you know, of, of authority and sovereignty. And that's generally speaking, then how political history gets taught. I mean, as we do political history, you know, up through the grade ranks, you know, uh, even into college often, the textbooks don't change that much. You know, the no. lessons don't change. I mean, we may talk about other things, but when we get around to talking about politics, generally speaking, who do we end up talking about? I mean, to say I was just what came, what came to mind right away is kind of Jacksonian democracy. Like, you know, then you can mm -hmm. understand this era just through this this one particular person. And and that's, 
you know how that political history works that you can just kind of go president by president and each one is meant to represent some change but it but it really is change at the level of of that elite politics as opposed to um you know the lived experiences of 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 actual people absolutely because if what we're trying to understand is sovereignty in the broadest sense we end up getting it in almost the narrowest sense mm -hmm. you know as formally uh practiced or formally governed you know through those rather restrictive channels of you know race and class and and gender and that sort of thing um such that you know but and that's only part of the problem i'm going to come back to that but the other problem is that we tend to see it exclusively in those formal terms sovereignty being what government does yes. and you might recall josh it was last summer uh, maybe early in the summer when the first sort of mask mandates uh, mm -hmm. were being promulgated, you know, uh, with the, with the, uh, the pandemic. And, and, you know, and, and, and that example occurred to me because that's one of the sovereignty issues that's flaring up now, right, is the, yeah. you know, this sort of um, reactionary moment of governors like the Texas Governor Abbott, mm -hmm. you know, uh, who has signed laws prohibiting uh, agencies such as schools and whatnot from mandating masks, right? Yeah. Well, I remember walking into a, a, a retail store with a out in front posted a sign that said, by order of, of Governor Gavin Newsom of, of California. And in that case, it was you had to wear a mask to go in, mm -hmm. in the store. And, and I asked myself, you know, this is quite an extraordinary sort of emblem of something. In other words, you know, Gavin wasn't actually standing there with a yeah. retinue of armed guards to keep you from going in if you didn't have a mask. So apparently this idea of sovereignty was something in your mind, right? You know, something Foucault might appreciate as like right. a in the dimension of conduct while you stop at a red light or a stop sign, you, even if nobody's around, right? You're just conditioned to understand that this somehow authorizes you to behave in a certain way. And so understanding sovereignty as that formal expression of institutional governing through the channels that are established. And I think that's also far too narrow, especially when you combine the racial and ethnic and gender element with that narrow understanding of sovereignty is, is far too narrow. So the example I want to give, all, all by way of saying, is that we can expand our sense of sovereignty to have a much richer understanding of how people actually live and even how people either are governed in fact or how they govern themselves just as importantly. And I think by doing that, what we can gain is greater insight into the kinds of culture wars, political wars, you know, political fever that's going on in our own time uh, you know, right up to and including January 6th, you know, the insurrection of, of uh, you know, at the Capitol on January 6th, which had those marauders declaring themselves to be patriots, you know. So there, there's a particular understanding in their minds, at least, of what they were doing as a kind of extra legal hit squad to stop the certification of the presidential election on January 6th. So I think unlike the traditional civics lesson we get on sovereignty about checks and balances and we the people and how a bill gets passed in a legislature, that those things, those formal accounts of some don't really help us at all. 
But that if we broaden understanding of sovereignty and look to the historical core and a longer historical trajectory, we start to understand, I think, our present time much better. And the example I have in mind here goes back to the colonial era, to the period before the American Revolution, actually, uh, a few decades before the American Revolution, uh, to the 1730s, basically. Remember the, the revolution, 1770s, famously 1776. So we're going back a few decades before the American Revolution, and we're going to look at a place that at that time was not part of the 13 British colonies, but which would later become part of the United States. And that was what was then the Spanish colony of Florida. Certainly, Florida has been in the news a lot lately with its governor taking this stand, this sovereignty stand to protect what he considers the liberties of Floridians by disallowing any effort to make them wear masks uh, in public or in, in uh, you know, public places during the, uh, the pandemic. So I find a kind of poetic connection here, you know, in talking about Spanish Florida. But I, even more seriously, I want to suggest there's an actual historical trajectory. Uh, unfortunately, it's not bending toward liberty, but uh, there is a <laughs> historical trajectory here we can understand. And it has to do with a community that is going to be established in northern Florida by a group of fugitive slaves, most of whom had fled enslavement in the British colony to the north, uh, the British colony of South Carolina, uh, which was by then deep into the throes of its own plantation system of uh, plantation agriculture. Um, the, the cash crop of, of South Carolina at the time was rice. Uh, and you had then enslaved African people being imported through Charleston. Someone once called Charleston the Black Ellis Island mm -hmm. because of the sheer numbers of enslaved Africans who in the late 17th and early 18th centuries and through the 18th century will come through Charleston Harbor as immigrants, yes, but as forced immigrants, as enslaved immigrants coerced now in the system of enslavement to work on the plantations of South Carolina. And from that population base, which by the way, we'll see the rise of black majorities in colonial South Carolina, particularly in the lowland coastal regions and the seacoast islands of South Carolina, you're gonna get these plantation districts uh, wherein you have majority, black majorities of 10 to one, 12 to one, and even more that is of black to white. So a remarkable sort of demographic born of this system of enslavement. And as it turns out, you're going to see not a small number uh, of episodes wherein those enslaved African peoples will actually rise up in resistance to their enslavement. And in many cases, successfully free themselves by heading directly south towards Spanish Florida. Uh, that is either along the coast in various sort of makeshift craft, you know, canoes and boats and such, or overland uh, to what was then the Spanish colony of Florida. And, and I'll tell you why they were doing that, because the decision of the Spanish crown, now part, I'm not, not going to get in the weeds of, uh, on this, the formal politics as it would normally be taught would be all about what? Would all be about the Spanish sort of crown versus the British imperial system yeah. and the Dipl jockey. Diplomatic history and yeah. 
diplomatic history and even military history. There's no yeah. shortage of actual, yeah. you know, wars. And there's the War of Jenkins' Ear, if you remember that one. one. Yeah. And, and I don't know that because I'm a historian. I think I memorized that in high school or something. Uh, all had to do with this, you know, sort of long-running imperial battle between these European powers, in this case, Britain uh, and Spain. Uh, okay, so it is in, uh, let's see, it is in the year 1738, 1738, that the Spanish granted unconditional freedom to all fugitives, by which they meant runaway slaves from the British colonies, all fugitives living on the Spanish frontier. In other words, the Spanish offered an amnesty or sanctuary law for any slaves that could make it to Spanish Florida from the British colonies. Now, the reason they do this in part has to do with that battle. I mean, they, they had been obviously in conflict with the British on and off for many decades by that point. Um, I mean, we could go all the way back to the Spanish Armada, I suppose, more than yeah. a century before, right? Uh, so this was partly the kind of imperial chess game that the, the great powers of Europe were playing. Anything that would hurt the British, you know, would benefit the Spanish, et cetera. So by offering amnesty to British, uh, you know, enslaved people living in the British colony, that would somehow tweak or harm the interests of the British. Well, there's a little bit more to it than that as well. I mean, and, and I would allow you to speak to this, I, I suppose, if you wish, that the Spanish were also sort of working these what we'll call sanctuary laws throughout their empire, actually. Mm. That is where, and it turns out this is not an isolated example. If it were, I wouldn't waste your time with it today. But as it turns out, throughout the Western Hemisphere, including the Spanish Empire, you find these pockets of what typically were described as fugitive slaves. We've called them maroons, that is yeah. runaway slaves who find um, some space in the landscape, either the mountains of Jamaica, you know, or the marshes of Spanish Florida, what have you, usually inaccessible, fairly inaccessible mm -hmm. places where they collect and gather together as fugitives from enslavement and begin to establish their own communities. And, and the Spanish really had kind of an interesting reaction to this because even though at times they would try to overpower, you know, these, these more often, it seems, they try to create some formal place for them, you know, within their own imperial governing system. So yeah. in the case of Florida, the one I'm going to talk about, they are actually going to grant a kind of legal status within the governing of Spanish Florida to this growing community of runaway slaves from Carolina. Well, one of the things that's so interesting also is, is those, those maroon communities tended to be extremely diverse pluralistic, right? And, and so, so much at odds with, with the way that the story of, the, the national story is told, right? That you have uh, this, this American sovereignty story that's told, you know, through the lens of you, as you suggested, of these kind of property white men. And then you have these maroon communities that are made up of, of escaped enslaved people, but from different places uh, often. Uh, often there's indigenous people also living in those communities. And then sometimes there'd be kind of fugitive whites as well in those communities. And so, you know, side by side with this increasingly, you know, uh, these societies that are defined, particularly the British colonies through through this kind of what increased uh, idea of whiteness, you have these maroon communities that are defined uh, through their their diversity and pluralism, which is 
a nice contrast. And, and it's a good example of how telling these kind of stories can uh, can reveal a lot more than just the traditional sovereignty stories, the diplomatic history, the military history, uh, the story of of kind of great men or or great states competing with each other. You have these smaller stories that also show a lot about the potential that exists. Uh, you know, I, I think of humanity to actually live together and work together uh, in in these in these kind of communities. So it's it's to me, you know, this these are the kind of stories that are truly inspiring, much more so than than some property white men. Uh, being mad because of their taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I look, I don't want to paint the Spanish, you know, out to be, you know, harbingers of civil rights or no, something. No, absolutely not, yeah. But there was something, I guess, uh, you know, to the idea that they had a long experience with African peoples being a Mediterranean state, you know, essentially, there were already large, rather large numbers of African people living in Spain, right? A um, place like Seville, there was a yeah. fairly you know, a vital community of, of sort of Afro-Spanish, Afro mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, Spaniards. In other words, uh, people who had assimilated uh, largely, um, you know, to, uh, to Roman Catholicism, who spoke uh, the language, you know, who adopted in many ways the accoutrement of, of Spanish culture and that sort of thing. Uh, and so this kind of assimilationist model, I think, allowed the Spanish governors to rather more easily acknowledge these diverse communities, as you described mm -hmm. them, you know, ultimately in a kind of assimilated, assimilative model, you know, yeah. whereas the English, particularly in a place like South Carolina, are driving down hard the barriers of racial caste right. and the strict separation between free and unfree. Uh, in their plantation economies. All right. Well, so this, I mean, this problem begins for the British and the, and, and, and the Spanish as soon as South Carolina is established as a colony. I mean, the, the founders of South Carolina are essentially Barbados sugar planters that are coming uh, out of that sort of distant corner of the West Indies, uh, British Imperium. And they're coming to South Carolina, what they come to call South Carolina, hoping to establish a uh, sugar planting there, it doesn't work out that way. It's the wrong soil, the wrong climate. And so they find other cash crops like indigo and, as I said before, rice that become the, the kind of you know driving engine of, of the new colonial economy in South Carolina. But they're bringing in a lot of Africans as, as well, and they're finding that they're struggling to maintain discipline and control over their enslaved population because it's so easy, relatively easy, to escape from the British system and find their way now into what seems to be the more welcome climes of Spanish Florida. So for example, in 1687, the British complained to the Spanish governor of Florida that uh, a recent escape of eight enslaved people, eight enslaved people, had uh, commandeered a boat and um, found their way along the coast uh, to St. Augustine, right? And mm -hmm. St. Augustine was one of the, you know, first established, uh, successfully established Spanish communities in Florida. It's still regarded, I guess, you know, as what the first European, successful European town or something in, yeah. you know, in, in, in the Atlantic coast. Uh, uh, so still a town, in other words, St. Augustine, Florida. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you know, it was sort of the font of, of northern Florida, Spanish imperial governance. And so the British complained about this, said, we know they came to St. Augustine. We know you've given them sanctuary and we either want them back or we want you to pay for them. 
right? And the Spanish did a kind of imperial song and dance and told them, well, no, we're not going to give them back. And no, we're probably not going to pay for them either. But, you know, this would become part of the formal diplomatic and therefore formal political story. But I don't want to look at that part. I want to look at the people who showed up, one of whom was an enslaved man by the name of Mingo. Now, Mingo was often the uh, the diminutive of Domingo, right? So mm, this is yep. probably, in effect, a kind of Hispanic African, right, who has taken on a, a sort of, you know, a Spanish identity. Maybe he spoke Spanish. Hard to know too much about him. But it was said that Mingo had escaped, was one of those who had escaped with his wife and child, hmm. his wife and child. Now, the English singled him out specifically for return because they said that Mingo had killed uh, a white uh, planter uh, or uh, may have been like an overseer. That is one of those who had tried to prevent this, this uh, escape. He'd actually, in, in, in doing it, had it killed this person. And so the, the English wanted him back, you know, so that he could be properly, um, you know, punished, right? Subjected mm -hmm. to... English sovereignty in this case by the laws of, of their slave system, as if he were a criminal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, in, in that context of sovereignty, how the story would play out, Mingo broke the law. Mingo was mm -hmm. an enslaved person living under a slave code, a duly sovereign slave code. And in the commission of this, this crime actually killed someone, thus becoming therefore uh, a murderer uh, as well. But what I want to suggest here, and what I ask you, Josh, we can look at that differently, can't we? In other words, if that's the way sovereignty under this sort of legal apparatus at the time would have reported the story, standing from our vantage point now, couldn't we say that Mingo actually did something that was at the very base of the English sense of sovereignty as it had been promulgated, was being promulgated. I mean, 1687 is the year of the English, uh, the revolution, right? You know, of, yeah, yeah. of William and Mary. Uh, and part of what had, had happened there was that, for example, the ideas of someone like a John Locke will become promulgated with this notion that sovereignty begins with the self, yes. right? And that you have these, uh, as Jefferson said, inalienable rights, you know, cribbing from Locke of life, liberty, et cetera, and, a, and usually of, of a state or property. But the, the first natural right you had as a self-sovereign was that of your own life and liberty. So couldn't we turn that around and say, hey, Mingo wasn't a criminal. Mingo was exercising his self-sovereignty. He was exercising by, his natural right. Yeah, his, his natural has, rights. So uh, yeah, no, and it's, it's such a great example of how you know, when you fight against sovereignty, you're a criminal, but when you fight, you know, for, for sovereignty, you know, because the, the American revolution is, is a violent revolution, right? It's, it's, um, there's death, there's destruction, destruction of property, property, but that is lauded as this, this moment of people seeking out freedom, but you don't see that, uh, from, from the other side. I was actually just reading, I was thinking about this as you were talking, I was just reading this thing about, um, about Haiti and there's this, this, you know, kind of famed, famous version of, of, Haitian independence, where after finally defeating the French, there's this supposed white genocide where the, where the new Haitian government is going to exterminate, uh, you know, a lot of the remaining white, uh, white uh, residents of, of Haiti. And, and this historian kind of took that apart. 
and said, well, well, first of all, it's not actually true. It was uh, they they did murder people who were plotting to overthrow the new government. Um, but the other part of this, this is, well, why is that called white genocide? Uh, but, you know, the actual slave system, which had reigned in, in Haiti for, for hundreds of years at that point, is just seen as, you know, something that was in the past and now is gone and now it, it needs to all be forgotten. So I think that that idea about fighting back against sovereignty, uh, particularly if you're on the side of that sovereignty, well, you know, has has generally been been treated in this 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 notion of this is uh, anarchy, this is chaos, this is violence against against the system. Um, but but it's never reversed that way, right? And again, the American Revolution is is a great example of that. But um, yeah, so it's 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 I think really important uh, to to think of Mingo as as a freedom fighter in his own right. And to, to, to think of them simply in terms of murder, um, you know, I, I, I think um, uh, doesn't describe the actual situation very well. And, and, you know, in doing so becomes complicit with that sovereignty trap that we're trying to get out of. Exactly, because it, it, it narrows the definition of sovereignty in the storytelling of the past to purely that institutional authority that is imposed on someone. It's yeah. not inclusive then of the reaction of that person. Mm -hmm. I mean, if anything, in the sovereignty trap story, Mingo's going to be seen as a rebel. And yeah. we'll actually probably call him like a slave rebel or something like mm -hmm. that, you know. Um, but we assume he's a rebel because he's outside of sovereignty at this point. Yeah. I mean, the actual word rebel, going back to its sort of Latin roots, meant to wage war against authority. Mm -hmm. So there's really no winning. I mean, if <laughs> if what you're trying to understand is Mingo in his own terms as a person exercising self-sovereignty, if you stick to that other more narrow definition, he's just got to be a rebel. Yeah. And, and even if you want to sort of celebrate him, you're still celebrating him within the context of being a rebel who's rebelling against some formal sovereignty. And, and, and again, I want to say that's not good enough. We want to say he represents a kind of sovereignty one that we have to take seriously. And I'll tell you why, because he wasn't the only one to do this. And even though in the standard version history, you know, of the United States, you'll get occasionally kind of like a Morris code tapped out. You'll get a couple of dots and dashes here and there, maybe referencing incidents like this. What you miss in the sovereignty story of the United States, the fact this was happening all the time all the time, especially in this context we're looking at, which is Spanish Florida. In, six years later, in 1693, Charles II, right, the Spanish monarch, Charles II, promulgates a new decree promising liberty to those fugitives who arrived in Spanish Florida. This is straight from the top now in the traditional sovereignty hierarchy. Uh, his promulgation said, giving liberty to all, the men as well as the women, so that by their example and my liberality, others mm. will do the same. So here's the Spanish sovereign actually inciting this sort of war against British sovereignty in the form of runaways, right, who are coming into the colony of Spanish Florida. In other words, the actions of Mingos and others were historically significant enough to get the Spanish sovereign to offer this new yeah. 
edict, this kind of sanctuary edict, we'll call it, right? Um, this, because, and here's what I don't want to forget, because if we see in the traditional sovereignty model, Josh, we see as sovereignty kind of emanating from the top, that is the actual motive force. That's why so many, you know, books are written about Winston Churchill for crying out mm -hmm. loud, because we assume that to do political history means you got to start with those who already have power. But in this case, the reason Charles II offers that sanctuary, that, that amnesty decree, is because of what those who are exercising self-sovereignty at the bottom of the hierarchy were actually doing. He's reacting words, to reality. Yes. He's reacting He's to reality. Reacting. He's not, yes, yeah. absolutely. What's happening on the ground, right? You mm -hmm. know, in the form of these, these fugitive slaves. Uh, and, and which, by the way, we have to acknowledge, because often hidden behind that mask of slave, I mean, hell, that's why I say Mingo. We have names here, okay? Because otherwise you get hidden behind that mask of sort of generic stock characters of slaves who are assumed to be outside or at best only beholden to sovereignty. They're, right. they're not actors of sovereignty. They're, they're, they're uh, recipients of sovereignty. But in this case, as the historian Jane Landers, who's written a, a famous or a fabulous book, I should say, about Spanish Florida. Landers writes, you know, these are the characters, that is, these enslaved people who for three centuries helped shape the geopolit geopolitics of the American Southeast, including Florida, and repeatedly created viable communities in Florida when uh, conditions permitted. In other words, what the historian uh, Jane Landers is saying these are the drivers of the political narrative in many respects. It's the, it's the monarch who's responding to what they're doing, and then the British who are responding to what he's doing. So if we kind of traced it down, you know, we did some like contact tracing on this, yeah. we would find the real generative actors of this history being those who we always assume in the sovereignty trap didn't actually have any political agency, mm -hmm. namely those who were enslaved. Uh, okay, so in any event, this is going to inspire an ongoing stream of runaways over the next several decades from the British colonies. Eventually, Georgia will be established at first without slavery, but then pretty quickly, slavery and enslavement will come to Georgia as well. So from, from Carolina and Georgia, you will get these generational <laughs> patterns now of uh, so-called fugitives who are leaving behind their plantations making. We don't have a, a strict census of this, of course. It was never anything like a majority of those enslaved, but neither was it not discernible on a historical radar if we want right. to look for it. In other words, you know, we assume that if we don't talk about it or something, it wasn't happening, but it was happening. Well, yeah, now let me just... Just just I was going to throw in there that, you know, the fact that Charles II, you know, in faraway Spain feels the need to react to to the situation in Florida, which, you know, within the Spanish Empire, the Florida is is the fringe of the fringe of, of that empire. Um, the fact that he feels mm -hmm. that this is, first of all, information that even makes it back to him in the Spanish court. And then he feels the need to, you know, promulgate some, you know, some uh, statement about it suggests mm -hmm. that whatever the actual numbers were, the import of it was big enough to 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 create a reaction even that far away um uh and and even in a colony that was again not at the center of, of spanish power by any means yeah exactly you know as as lander says you know that would determine or help shape not determine but help shape the geopolitics 
of the Southeast, but really the, the greater Caribbean for years to come, because these, these ongoing battles between the great powers of Europe throughout the Atlantic world will often be predicated on these sort of, uh, these, these, these characters, ground level characters who are inciting, mm -hmm. you know, these larger political um, responses. Uh, and so, okay, so, so what ends up happening after decades of this is that the Spanish just decide to allow for a new town, a new settlement, a new community made up essentially uh, of, of runaway slaves from the British, a whole town now that would be given its own governing charter to be established just north of St. Augustine. And the name of that town uh, as it's charted is Gracia Real de Santa Teresa de Mos. So Gracia Real, with the approval or the blessings of the king, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in the name of, of uh, the sainted Teresa uh, de Avila, this town called Mose, M-O-S-E. And typically, and we've said this before on the broadcast, right? You know, typically when you saw Mose in the Spanish lexicon there, something named Mose, it often referred to what? To Moses. Yeah, the biblical figure, yeah. right? The one who leads his people, mm -hmm. you know, to, to freedom. And so there's clearly a kind of depth here to the yeah, meaning right. of this word and the naming of this town. Uh, and its initial charter has about 100 people of African descent, some of them proclaimed as mulattoes, you know, some of them as, as, as still African, maybe African-born, uh, mixed race people, in other words, but essentially regarded by the Spanish as as kind of Afro Creoles, right? Former slaves, almost all of them now, living in this sanctuary community called Santa Teresa de Mos. And the leader of the community, by the way, I found it interesting, is a character by the name of Francisco Menendez. Uh, but here again, we have this kind of Latin, Afro Latin. Yeah. Uh, character because he's actually Mandinga, mm -hmm. Mandinga from Senegambia, right? One of the ethno-linguistic groups of Senegambia, the Mandinga, who had a tradition in Senegambia of being kind of political uh, movers and shakers of military people, among other things. So here's a guy with a memory tradition of coming from the Mandinga uh, people of, of, of greater Senegambia, West Africa, who assumes leadership now with a kind of Spanish identity, undoubtedly a speaker of Spanish, as we'll see, a remarkable character. Uh, he, he's someone, again, this Francisco uh, Menendez, who, if we had more time, I would say on any you know, teachers uh, listening, look him up, because he's a guy with a mercurial career that for about 40 years from the founding of Santa Teresa de Mose, will remain not only the titular um, captain of that community, and by the way, as a kind of military captain, a military figure, um, he would be analogous to those in the maroon communities throughout the Western Hemisphere, who often organize themselves on kind of paramilitary lines using yeah. African military traditions, right? So this guy right. Menendez is, in that tradition, too, is a kind of African military commander figure now creolized in the Spanish system with a Spanish identity, Afro-Spanish or Latin Spanish or Latin Afro identity. So pretty, yeah. pretty well, interesting character, it's, right? It's very cool because, uh, you know, you talk about the founding of the town and 
you know, my own uh, studies of, of the Spanish Empire, it's a very um, regular system of, of creating these these towns. You've got to create a charter. You need the name. You know, basically what it sounds like is happening in, in, in this town is the same thing that Cortez did when he landed at the place he called Veracruz on his way to Tenochtitlan, that he had to, you know, in his first letter back to the crown, he, he, he talks about like all the exciting stuff, but he spends a lot of time talking about the act of creating a town. And it sounds so much like like the, what you were just discussing. Even I, I, I imagine the title that that um, uh, Francisco is Francisco Menendez. Is that that, that the name? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I yep. imagine the title he has, the Spanish title he has, is probably the same title that Cortez claimed for himself. Um, and it's an elected position, like the community votes you in. And so it, it's just it's just so interesting watching this 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 system uh, that emerged in, in again. You know, going back to stuff I talked about in previous episodes, the Reconquista. Um, you know, now making its way to uh, to the Americas, being used in all these different circumstances, and then this particular case being used to construct this this town uh, with a population that um, you know uh, that you know you would just ne- you wouldn't see anywhere else in the world. It's such a specifically Western Hemisphere thing in terms of the yeah. collection of people, the influence yeah. that go into it, and I mean. To me, this is just, it's its such fascinating stuff. And this is what I wish we were talking about all the time, right? Like this kind of mm-hmm. stuff is so much more fascinating than just, you know, hearing what Thomas Jefferson had for dinner or what books he read or, you know, how he annotated his copy of the Bible or whatever. I mean, what are these stories we, right. we get? This is a fascinating story that's so revealing about, about you know, the cr- creation, right? Because this is the creation of a new world. Um, and it's being done, you know, not by, you know, purely by sovereignty, but by a mix of people who, through negotiation, through uh, cultural uh, encounters, through uh, sharing of, of ideas, are constructing something that w- we haven't seen before. Um, and that, to me, that gets me fired up because that's the coolest stuff yeah. in, in history, like novelty. Well, and right? I would, I mean, look, I would ask you if we were to pick two examples, say, you know, let's say, you know, the, the framers of the Constitution, the so called founding fathers at Philadelphia, professing we the people mm-hmm. or Francisco Menendez and a community of formerly enslaved fugitives who have essentially forced the hand of the Spanish empire yeah. to give them formal sovereignty. Which would you want to apply we the people to? Yeah. Well, and, and which one represents a more inspiring, you know, idea of freedom is, is, is the other thing. Right. Um, so there's just, it's just such a great, um, you know, example of how we can find better stories. Um, you know, you've, you've been studying this stuff for a long time. It's not as, as easy as, as just, you know, finding the story, but there are so many stories out there that can, can help us better understand our world. And, and, you know, from that, from that sovereignty perspective, the other thing that that's, you know, occurring to me from, from hearing this, this example is that, you know, sovereignty likes to make proclamations. They like to talk about what they can do, um, what they want to do, how they want people to behave, but but the thing that I think we we know we can notice really easily in this story is you can make proclamations, but there's a difference between saying stuff and be able to act on it. And the actual capacity of the sovereign in so many cases, particularly in the pre-modern world before, you know, this real disciplinary power comes into being is very, very limited. Um, and, and so the reality is that we got to be really, really careful about just reading the proclamations of power and assuming that they exist in 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 the real world um because what you're suggesting is the reality is the spanish king can say whatever he wants he can try to you know essentially salvage the situation which he has no control over over florida 
but the real actors in this case are somebody other than the sovereigns um, and, 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 and people who are really driving the actions of the sovereigns as opposed to vice versa. So, you know, I, I, to me, one of the big lessons is we cannot take sovereignty literally, particularly in a, in a world where state power was still so limited and state capacity was so limited. Other people are making the decisions. Other people are making things happen. And it's not the king back in Spain. It's, it's the people on the ground. Yeah, I totally agree. And we can't, neither can we so narrowly define what we mean by sovereignty is to to leave ourselves in that trap we talk about, where if it doesn't pass through the prism of that kind of formal, powered, powerful interest, that interest of power that in the case of, say, U.S. history was so often, you know, racially, ethnically, uh, materially based on elite white males. Uh, So that we end up with this idea that, Someone's coming to take our sovereignty away mm-hmm. when people of color protest on behalf of voting rights or yeah. against police brutality, that somehow they are the illegitimate actors, right, in, in, the, in, the, in the citizenry mm-hmm. who now must be subject to, once again, the power and forestry. You know, we saw Trump sending in all those uniformed goon squads right yeah. into Portland, Portland last year and, you know, and, and saying that it was the you know, the rebellion of the people. I mean, some of the language even gets recycled here. So, uh, and what often happens in the history, because what I want to say, look, lest we say, just because a traditional political historian might say, oh, come on, you're talking about a side affair, something playing out on a small stage. But again, as you as you acknowledge, Josh, you know, this is actually a kind of lever of empire here. And as uh, Jane Landers writes, by the time of the Mose settlement, the Santa Teresa de Mose settlement, the Council of the Indies, mm-hmm. which is essentially what the the imperial governing body for the Spanish Empire in the Atlantic world, yeah, uh, more or less. I mean, if you were looking for a kind of formal institution of sovereignty, the Council of the Indies had already authorized and recognized what we'll call autonomous black communities throughout New Spain, throughout the whole Spanish Empire, not not just in this corner of Florida but essentially the length and breadth of the Spanish empire. This mm-hmm. becomes part of their formal now governing mentality to acknowledge what Jane Landers called the Vida Politica. That is the, the sort of town, the organization into towns of disparate interests of, of different racial and ethnic groups, because if they could do that as an empire, then they could presumably what they could draw tribute or taxation yeah. or governing or something. And they, they felt it was better to try to then bring these communities into the fold. But again, they're not just doing this because they have some grand, what, vision of civil rights. They're doing it because it's happening so often and they're essentially powerless to stop it. Yeah. Right. No, so they want to make right. us some virtue out of this or something. Well, okay. So let me wrap this up because it all kind of comes to a head. Now, in the telling of U.S. history and U.S. Uh, the colonial history, uh, the sort of prehistory of the United States in the in the colonial era, is you get mention of a, a pretty well-known rebellion called the Stono Rebellion of 1739 that takes place near the Stono River outside of Charleston in South Carolina, where uh, you get a sizable number of enslaved Africans who rise up with force of arms, overthrow, uh, you know, their overseers and begin a march now. And when I say march, 
John Thornton is, is one of those who has really tied in the protocol of the Sono Rebellion to military traditions in Africa because mm. they raised banners, they had drums beating, they gave themselves military titles. Uh, and uh, in the end, uh, they kill about 20 whites before themselves being stopped, their progress halted. Where were they going? Guess where they were going? The Florida. Sono rebels were going yeah. to Santa Teresa de Mos, right? That's where mm. they were heading. That's and they amazing. were ultimately stopped by the white militia in South Carolina after a couple of pitched battles. The way it was narrated in the English version was that the South Carolina militia caught up to the rebels when they stopped for a drunken dance party. <laughs> it was worth it, and, though. And, <laughs> but what John Thorne says, that's not a drunken dance party. That's using... Again, the musicality, the drums, the banners, and what was for them an a traditional African kind of cadenced, rhythmic association of the fighting men mm -hmm. as part of their preparation for going into battle. Yeah. No, they, they weren't just, you know, having, uh, you know, a layabout here. They were following a protocol of African military tradition. Now, the lesson of this in the U.S. Uh, history story is always, well, they were defeated. The Stoner mm. rebel, Stoner rebels were put down, and in fact, they were for the most part. It's not clear. Some seem, after the second pitch battle, perhaps to have made it as far as 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 Spanish Florida. There's evidence of that, in other words, because some of them turn up in Havana, Cuba later. The names of those who were seemingly associated with the Stono Rebellion. But here's what you usually don't get. You know, you don't get the fact that the ne very next year, another so-called rebellion, an uprising of enslaved people, 150 just outside of Charleston, also call out the white militia of South Carolina of the 150 rebels. In that case, about um, uh, it's estimated about 50 of them were apprehended and, and hung. They were subject to grievous punishments as lessons to others who might rebel. But the other 100, what happened to them? There's mm. there's no record of it. Yeah. And so we don't know for sure, but it's not, you know, outside the realm of understanding that some number of them, in fact, made it ultimately to mm -hmm. Spanish Florida, because what happens is a renewed effort by the British to get rid of this community, which they claim all along is drawing away their enslaved people. Uh, and it will uh, ultimately be after the Seven Years' War, a few decades later, in which the British defeat, among others, the Spanish interests, that the Spanish agree to the evacuation of Santa Teresa de Mos, not St. Augustine, but this autonomous black community. And a lot of those folks then end up in Havana uh, in Cuba under Spanish uh, sanctuary there. So, okay. So, so much to say. But So what do we say about the career of this autonomous entity, this sovereign, self-sovereign entity that is given, you know, Spanish, the imprimatur of the Spanish crown called Santa Teresa de Mos. Well, first we can say, as Jane Landers does in talking about it, that it helped shape, because here's, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's what normally would be said. It would be said, well, what do you want to do? It didn't work. They're not there. Yeah. They lost. You know, the, 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 the town was extinguished or something like that. Um, and I have a real problem with that, because that's, again, where we're using too narrow a definition of sovereignty. Yes, the official sovereign entity, notice Santa Demos, was extinguished. 
but not its cultural imprint. You know, you sent me that piece by Ann Stoller, Laura, Laura Ann Stoller earlier this week. She talks about the watermark yeah, of empire. Right, yeah. And I thought that was really brilliant because, you know, you look at the paper, you don't see it right away. But the imprint, if you hold it up in the light, and look yeah. through, you can see the watermark. And so the watermark of Santa Teresa de Mons lives on very much in the Afro-Creole culture and people who remain in Florida, many of them having fled to other communities, become refugees, maybe some assimilating into the native seminal peoples, the native peoples, which were known to have a, a significant component of kind of Afro-native progeny, you know, that just simply become assimilated. And it's the United States that will go to war against the Seminole Indian people, the native people of Florida in the 1820s and 30s in a succession of wars known as the Seminole Wars. So we can say that the watermark is still there yeah. as late as the 1820s and 30s. But I want to say even to this day in the uh, African-American population of Florida and, and, and of the South, you would have a certain element, a lineage, a genealogy will, if you will, of those who became part of that community experience of former enslaved peoples who claimed their own self-sovereignty and who never left, you mm -hmm. know, who remained part of the fabric, the kind of uh, cultural and demographic fabric then of the Southeast region. You know, uh, if we could do, in other words, the family tree, we would find those connections there still. And 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 I think, you know, ultimately what I would say about this, the other reason why it doesn't disappear unless we, we restrict it to that traditional sovereignty standing is because to this day, as we said, you have voter suppression laws being passed in our own time in these states of the Southeast in particular, where there are large numbers of African-American voters, as we saw in the last election in Georgia, it was the tipping point, right, for the Democrats gaining a bare majority in the U.S. Senate and in so many other ways that, in effect, the, the war is still going on. That if we mm -hmm. see those voter suppression laws, not in the narrow sort of, you know, Aubrey Huff, you know, um, definition of someone coming to take our freedom, something somebody doing something illegitimately outside the white nucleus of real sovereignty, but instead draw the picture back three centuries or so to see that long arc yeah. of black community, Afro-Creole culture, self-sovereignty that never, never went away. And that lives as a watermark, if you will, as an imprint, right? in the lives and politics of the country still to this day, it's a lot harder to use those kinds of uh, arguments, you know, that we saw, you know, uh, not just from Aubrey Huff, but in, you know, coming out of the, the kind of white nationalist, you know, voter suppression, uh, January 6th insurrection of this notion that since we, are the real sovereigns of the country since this is our sovereignty meaning white you know the imprint of white national it's harder to make those arguments if you have this broader perspective yes. of a history that from the beginning was highly contested very diverse often quite successful outside those narrow channels of sovereignty yeah well we're going to get to segment three but i i, I do want to um 
I do want to just say as a, as a way out that, you know, so often we hear that, that idea of history repeating itself. And I, I think with these voter suppression laws, that's a common refrain that, oh, we're going back to, we're, we're repeating the history that we thought we were past. But I think what, what, what you're suggesting, what your story suggests is it's not repetition. It's the same story, right? It's the same fight over sovereignty, the same fight yes. about liberty, the same fight about who gets to make decisions and who has to be subject to those decisions. Um, you know, the story is not exactly the same, but it's the same right. uh, uh, trajectory, the same uh, process that's been happening. And, you know, as you traced going back into the 18th century and, and even further. Yeah, yeah, and where an issue like color is concerned or mm-hmm. race, in that sense, these issues have never been fully resolved. And as long yes. as we continue to define sovereignty and the teaching of history a certain way, they always remain marginal to the story. Mm-hmm. At best, rebels, you know, not as self-sovereign actors defining their own political communities with their own political traditions, which of course, there's not an unbroken line connecting Santa Teresa de Mos then to what, you know, the Atlanta State House or yeah. Tallahassee State House or whatever now. Uh, but nevertheless, in the historical drift, the historical trajectory, there is a conflict that has never yet been resolved or yes. properly recognized that I think if we were to do that now would give us much greater insight on how we might actually resolve these uh, things in our in our own time. Well, that was a fantastic. I'm going to call it story time with Chris. I'm always willing to sit on my sit on sit on uh, you know cross legged and, and listen to story time with with Chris because it's always enlightening. It always gets me thinking about a bunch of other things. Um, you know, often that have nothing to do with with the history of of you know this particular area, this particular nation. Because I think what what we find is that you know the stories you're telling um, about you know the Americas, about the Western Hemisphere. Um, are distinct in some ways, but what we really need to understand is that there's a, a set of processes going on as we kind of watch the construction of the modern world uh, that we can find in lots of different places. And I just want to you know, take us out with a, a little discussion of India and the way that that British sovereignty in India um, also uh, is going to impose a kind of erasure on what had been there before. And the reason why I think this is significant is because you know, as we try to climb out of that sovereignty trap, build build ladders instead of dig further down, we got to be really aware of, of, of where our knowledge comes from and, and the process of knowledge construction. Um, because I think even for those of us who try really hard, you know, to get outside Eurocentrism, to get outside you know, these traditional ways of telling the story, we're still stuck with, with the fact that so much of the knowledge we used, we used to try to understand, you know, places like India is knowledge that was particularly constructed uh, within empire. And so, you know, I'll, I'll be relatively quick here, but but uh, I want to reference just something from a, 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 actually an anthropologist named Bernard Cohn. And he he, he has a book about, um, about colonialism and its forms of knowledge is what he calls this book, a really excellent uh, collection of, of essays. One of the things he says about, about the British in India, he says, for the British, quote, there was widespread agreement that India like other regions they were governing, 
could be known and represented as a series of facts. The form of these facts was taken to be self-evident, as was the idea that administrative power stemmed from the efficient use of these facts. So that is a statement about the British in India, you know, beginning in the later 18th century. But I think it still very much represents how a lot of people think about history, that history is a collection of facts. If we can find enough facts, we can come up with a narrative. And then if we have that narrative, then we have history, right, which we can then present to students. But one of the things that that Cohn points out and many other scholars had pointed out is that facts are not, in fact, self-evident. Facts have to be chosen and selected. What's uh, important to some people is not the same as what's important to others. And that in the process of collecting these facts, what the British were actually doing is not representing India, but they were constructing their own version of India, which they could then justify ruling over. Um, and so just can give you a couple examples here, but um, one of, of kind of the early major figures in, in uh, you know, uh, late 18th century India as, as India is, is, is going from, you know, uh, under Mughal rule to increasingly under large and larger parts of the subcontinent are under the control of the East India Company. Um, the British become more concerned with actually trying to govern, uh, something they hadn't really cared about for the previous many, many generations. And so William Jones is going to come to India as a member of the Calcutta High Court. Um, and as, as Cohn describes him, uh, he says, Jones, even before arriving in India, seemed to distrust Indian scholars' interpretations of their own legal traditions, a distrust that grew with experience in India. So here's William Jones. He's, he wants to come to India to help govern India. But right from the start, he already believes that the Indians cannot be trusted to explain their own selves to him and to make sense of their own society, right? So well, they didn't have the facts, Josh. They, they didn't have that. You know? No, that's exactly right. Because uh, to, to throw out another quote here, Jones wanted to provide English courts in India, crown and company, with a sure basis on which they could render decisions consonant with a true or pure version of Hindu law. And so the assumption there is that Hindus themselves, Muslims as well, because he also wants to collect a lot of facts about Muslim law, didn't understand their own law. They didn't uh, know how to how to interpret their own law. So it was up to somebody like William Jones, an objective observer, right? That's how he's, he wants to style himself, who can take this mishmash of different traditions, uh, which again, he says the Indians didn't really understand and didn't know how to be systematic about. And what he can do from this is help rule India in a way that was consonant with actual Indian tradition. Now, you see the problem with that? Well, I, I see a huge problem with it if you're trying to reconstruct, you know, the story. Yes. Exclusively on the terms of Mr. Jones, as it were. Yeah. In other words, the story you're going to tell is always going to shade to the side of British sovereignty. Yes. With the the, the under, uh, underlying assumption that these people needed to be governed that way. They needed to be governed. They could not govern themselves. And, you know, the first quote I, I, I suggest, you know, I, I read, he, he states administrative power. This is from Jones himself. Administrative power stem from the efficient use of facts. So the facts are not just being selected, you know, randomly. They're being selected specifically to the extent they help to um, establish administrative power for, for the British. And so those facts are going to be things that that work for the British that don't necessarily represent a true Hindu law, a true Islamic law, a true Indian tradition, 
um, but represent what the British would like that tradition to be because of the way that it uh, is going to serve their own interest. And, you know, what, you know, there's, there's much more I could do about this. Maybe in another episode, I'll, I'll do a fuller discussion of this obsession with knowledge collection that emerges in the, in the early modern world and then really takes hold in the modern world. But what, you know, I kind of take from this is that we've got to be very careful about using the knowledge that kind of comes out of empire, because that knowledge is never simply neutral. It's never simply benign. That knowledge is always going to be um, marked with, with power and sovereignty. And you can't possibly uh, represent a people when they're only, uh, you know, going to come across to you in the language of sovereignty. And, and the example that, you know, I, I like to come back to is the very idea of caste. Um, and, you know, we can, we can head out with this because caste is an, an amazing example of something that, that that's so fundamental to the way India is, is often talked about. Um, if you, you know, uh, read most textbooks, if you read most discussions of India, there's this idea of caste as this thing that existed in India in time immemorial, right? It's just a fundamental part of, of the way Indians live their lives. But there's very little evidence for that fact. Um, you can go to the 18th century when the Maratha empire is first emerging, and it's pretty clear uh, that the Marathas themselves just adopt a Kshatriya caste identity, uh, and Kshatriya is the warrior caste, um, because it will help them make their claim to sovereignty, right? So on the one hand, there is this example of them claiming caste identity, suggesting caste has some importance. On the other hand, though, what it also demonstrates is that caste was not this binding notion in which you know people were born into, their, into this destiny, they had to be this or that. Uh, we have all kinds of examples in Indian history in which caste was actually fluid, in which people moved up and down the caste system. And guess when that caste identity became less fluid? Guess how that caste identity, rather, became more fluid? I'm sorry, became oh, less fluid. Brit yeah. When You mean when the, the Brits showed up? Yeah. Well, as they showed up and began to collect those facts. And one of the key facts they collected was that Indians care about caste. And one of the ways that they were going to represent that is they began, uh, you know, as modern governments begin to do first empires, really, before they do it in their own nations, in many cases, they took censuses and surveys. And one of the major questions they asked Indians on those censuses was to identify themselves by caste. Um, most Indians had never not really thought of themselves in caste terms before. Um, but now there was these official documents which, um, which encouraged them to choose a caste identity. And once those senses had established one's caste identity, it became more and more a part of, of Indian identity. And you get to the point in the 19th century where caste has become a fundamental part of the way Indians represented themselves and identified themselves and a fundamental part of the social fabric of India. But that's not just some, some kind of you know, process that goes back to time immemorial. It's a process that has you know some precedent in earlier periods, but was constructed through this collection of facts, which the British were so interested in doing, um, and and then continues to have this uh, this major role in later Indian history. Now, what's interesting well, about the, yeah, I, go go for it? Can I ask you something? It's, sure. Because I think what I'm getting, you know, and and there's a there's a, a certain nuance here, and I know I'll mm -hmm. kick myself if we don't you know, sort of flesh it out even as we're working through this. Is it fair to say that what you're saying about caste in this case, if we approach the story of caste, of Indian caste, through the lens of 
British sovereignty. You know, we're going to end up with a, a maybe, you know, at best is a kind of, um, well, to say an imperfect understanding, I don't think quite does it justice. We're going to end up with a certain understanding of a fundamental Indian tradition, let's say, a historical yeah. tradition that is, you know, highly attenuated on these terms set by the British yes. sovereignty lexicon, you know, so that even if we look at slaves, for example, who was, and we're using the sovereignty of, say, you know, British imperialism in North America, we're always going to end up saying, well, they were rebels, mm -hmm. you know, instead of saying, let's not center that sovereignty narrative in the first place. And let's say that they were exercising their own sovereignty, not according to the terms of the enslavers, you know, right. but according to their own terms. So that the, let's say maybe Indian traditions were working according to their own logic, yes. cultural, social, you know, historical logic, and that we shouldn't center that story in the frame of, of British sovereignty narratives, something yes. like that. No, I think that's, 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 uh, that's really good. And, and, you know, I think that the, the thing comes out of this, though, we have to, you know, it's one thing to say, like we say with a nation, like, or, or with race, you know, race is a, is a construct, it's not a biological reality. But that doesn't mean that race is not significant, because it has a huge impact, obviously, in the construction of the modern world and, and contemporary societies. It's a similar thing with with caste, right? Caste is complicated. It's nuanced. It's not easy to, to sum up, but what the British want to do when they come to India, like William Jones wanted to do, is he wanted to try to discover the essential Indian, right? The pure, the true Indian. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they took complex concepts and simplified them and essentialized them so that they represented the entire thing. And then once they did, through their acts of sovereignty, they reified these institutions, they reified these customs, and then turned them into what came to be seen as the essential elements of, of who Indians were, who Hindus were. And, you know, I, I think maybe the Which last is how thing, that yeah, we, yeah. isn't that how we then get it in the story in, in our history lesson? Yes. In other words, we end up getting that story of something Indian historically through the lens of British imperialism. So look, even if we're sympathetic to the Indians, you know, and, 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 you know, feel a certain antagonism toward the British, we're still doing it, like you said earlier, in that hole created by the sovereignty yes. narrative. In other words, yeah. we can be uh, sympathetic to or even want to identify with these, um, you know, subjects, these colonial subjects, let's say. But we're doing it through the lens of them being colonial subjects, not yeah. being a people with their own history, their own identity, their own practices, their own autonomy. Well, and I would even go further, you know, even the idea of them being a people is a construct of, of you know, British rule, right? Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, Indians mm -hmm. didn't consider themselves a people, right? you know, right. when, when the British first arrived. Yeah. It's a massive, you right. know, collection of huge diversity, which then become, sure. uh, you know, simplified in this, this idea of Indianness. And then once you have Indianness, you've got to then, you know, figure out, well, what the hell makes you an Indian? And, you know, this goes even further because uh, like a major, major Indian text, like a Bhagavad Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, you've heard of the Bhagavad Gita, uh, I would suspect very famous, uh, you know, Indian Hindu text. Um, but it's Europeans who first latch on to the Bhagavad Gita and it's people like uh, Hegel who reads it and then interprets it. And the, the funniest thing that I just read this, actually, I think this was in, in Priya's book in Times Monster, 
she says Gandhi, Gandhi, who came from a high caste, who was from a scholarly fam family, never read the Bhagavad Gita in India. He read it when he was in England and he read it in an English translation. Uh, but but the Bhagavad Gita became, you know, becomes part of this this essence of, of Indian identity, of Hindu identity, um, when there, there's at least some uh, notion that that at least partially it becomes more important um, because of this essentializing process as the British try to collect and disseminate knowledge. And the last thing I want to say about caste, because we can kind of make a connection here, is that, you know, it's become common to to refer to the U.S. as having a racial caste system. Um and um, and part of, I think, what, what often comes across that notion is that the racial caste system is like India, right? That the, the caste system that develops in the United States can be compared to something like what happened in India. But what I want to suggest, and I'm, I'm throwing this out as, as a suggestion only, is not that, you know, racial caste in the United States comes to resemble something like this, you know, ancient institution of caste in India, but the development of caste in India as a former, formal, essentialized social institution and racial caste in the United States are part of the exact same process. They're part of the process of modernity where people like the British, like the French, like you know various you know, Americans want to take the world. And, and you know to use that that line from um, from uh, Rabindranath Tagore, they want to take humanity and bundle them up. Right? They want to turn the world into a, a bunch of separate bundles of humanity. They want to create a set of boxes and borders between people, between uh, categories. And in doing so, caste is the perfect vehicle uh, for that. Um, and so again, we don't want to use India as uh, you know, the example of caste upon which we can, we can then compare everything else. We want to see caste in India as a modern current construction that serves the interest of a modern thirst for knowledge as long as that knowledge is relatively simple, uh, doesn't have a lot of nuance, and serves uh, serves the needs of sovereignty. Yeah, we've given our listeners a, a lot to uh, to chew on here, and I tell you, you know, if 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 at the end of the day, at the end of the podcast, all we're saying is, if you go down that sovereignty road to understand the past, you're going to be limited to that very highly conditional understanding of something, you know, that, that is, as you point out, whether it's British notions of Indian caste, uh, whether it's American notions of sovereignty and, and self-governance in a formal sphere is, is going to leave you very, very few options for understanding the ground level experience of people whose lives now are being framed by those systems. In other yeah. words, if we want to understand them on their own terms, we're not going to be able to get there via that road, mm -hmm. uh, or at least not the way we want to, because it's always going to be conditioned on those constructs, on those understandings of sovereignty uh, that are created in those knowledge systems that yes. you describe. Yeah. You know? So thinking of other ways to tell the story from different vantage points without being limited to that, you know, kind of one-way street of understanding built around these conceptions of sovereignty. That's that's really what we're, I think what we're on about, Josh, and what as a couple of historians, you know, we're in our own process of trying to reimagine what that map would look like yeah. if we no, didn't that, always head. 
go down that same road. You know? Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, you know, I, I think it speaks to the idea. We're not suggesting that we've got to solve, that we've got this figured out. You know, this is something I struggle with every every semester is how can I do something other than what has always been done? And I, I think, you know, for, for those of you who are teachers and entering your semester, it doesn't have to be all at once. But if you can, you know, find a story here and there that, that veers off that traditional path that doesn't, you know, fit in with a traditional narrative, then eventually there will be a, enough of those stories that your class will be different, right? It'll be a different sort of class that tells a different sort of story that reveals more voices, that reveals more alternatives, that uh, uncovers these kind of lost histories that so often get uh, buried in that pit of the sovereignty trap. Yeah, and I think you'll end up having a fuller and richer understanding of how you, the system in which you live, the governing system, for example, how it actually works outside that narrow path, you yes. know, because we're not we're not ultimately saying, oh, you know, don't don't pay attention to power, don't pay attention yes. to governing, don't, you know, of course not. We're we're just trying to get a different view uh, of of how it all works so that we can give ourselves a chance to resolve the problems that uh, that those systems have created for yes. us in the modern age. Yeah. And speaking of systems causing problems, we are heading into uh, our semester which requires a lot of, of work. So we're gonna take a little bit of time off from the podcast to uh, engage in our actual, the actual jobs we get paid for. So we'll probably be back um, sometime in September. Um, but until then, good luck with uh, the start of your semester for all you teachers, for those who aren't teachers. Um, even if we're not speaking to you through your headphones, you can still keep thinking about these issues as it affects your own lives as you read the news. This stuff is always relevant and we'll be talking to you again soon enough. Take care, everybody. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one closing your eyes again. So you don't have to see what's happening. Then now, what's going on in these streets? You can't live by what you see on TV. Stop sucking a cycle so we